0: Welcome to the Ward's Auto Podcast. My name is David Kiley, senior editor at Ward's Auto, and this is Episode Three of this brand new podcast series that we debuted last week at AutoTech 2023, which Ward's and parent company Informa held at the Suburban Collection in Novi, Michigan. There, we explored various subjects like autonomous driving and connected car with some of the industry's top leaders and innovators we have kicked off this podcast the first one wards has done in its 99 year history with a series of six episodes dealing with the transition from an auto industry centered around internal combustion engines to one centered around electrification you can find wards auto podcast on all the major platforms like apple pandora spotify stitcher and more and if you are listening to this episode, you can easily check out episodes one and two, where we talked to Christy Schweinberg from Wards Intelligence and Jordan Chobi from Toyota. And in episode two, where we talked with Adam Ragazzino, battery analyst for Wards Intelligence. And he in turn speaks to one of the most influential lithium analysts in the world. Check it out. This week, I talked to John McElroy, editor of AutoLine and part of the Ward's family, about how he sees the transition to electrification going, pitfalls and all. Then we have a discussion with Dr. Martin Fisher, who is head of ZF North America and on the board of management at ZF AG. When we come back, I'll get into the trenches with John McElroy.
1: The Wards Autos podcast is brought to you by Wards Intelligence. Wards Intelligence provides trusted data, expert insight, and reliable forecasts into the automotive and auto tech industries. Renowned for their extensive current and historical data sets, pragmatic perspective, and industry embedded analysts, it's easy to see why over 90% of their subscribers renew each year. To learn more about their market-leading automotive intelligence capabilities, Head over to wardsintelligence.informa.com. John McElroy, thank you for joining us
0: on uh, this maiden voyage of the uh, Ward's Auto Podcast.
2: David, thanks for having me.
0: You have a long association with Ward, so it's uh, it's great to uh, it's great to have you on the on the podcast.
2: No, it's true. I think I've been writing a, a monthly column for Wards for whew, over 20 years now.
0: <laughs> so the topic of this and the theme of this episode is the transition of the auto industry from an internal combustion engine model to the battery electric vehicle model. And you have been very outspoken, very direct. In your writings over the last few years about with a certain amount of skepticism, I think, about the the targets and the goals and the speed with which you think this is going to happen. Can you kind of encapsulate uh, your position on that?
2: Sure thing. Look, I'm all in when it comes to electric. It's the future. There's no turning back. In fact, you know, you and I both get to test drive a lot of cars every year. I mean, a lot of cars, I I probably get into something like 70 different vehicles every year. And after I get out of test driving an electric and get back in an ice powered vehicle, I feel like I'm stepping back into the 19th century. I mean, it literally feels like that. Now, having said that, the transition for the auto industry to electric is going to be traumatic, already is. I mean, you know, Ford is the only legacy automaker with the guts to put its financials out there where it stands with electrics. And we know, I mean, Ford's been very blunt about it. It's going to lose something like $3 billion this year. And everyone's picking on Ford. But believe me, all the legacies are losing money on electrics right now. And they will until later in this decade. You know, Ford says it hopes to get to somewhere around break-even 2025, 2026. Mary Barr at GM says they will be profitable in that time frame. But most of these OEMs are going to struggle and and they're going to lose billions of dollars until it catches on. And uh, you know, just looking at the U.S. market for the moment, we can talk global, of course. But in the U.S. market, all the polls show EVs have become so politicized that you know there are people who are you know you can have my internal combustion engine when you peel my cold dead fingers off it. They want nothing to do with EVs. I personally believe that will change in time but between now and when OEMs can be profitable uh those people are not coming on board and you know they they know everything what's wrong about an EV and in some cases they've got legitimate concerns uh but right now for example the the charging infrastructure is not widespread enough mm. um and uh as we all know uh some of the chargers out there tesla excluded may not be very reliable and so there's a big problem for the industry when half the car buying public says, no, thank you.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, personally, as, as I've observed it, and, and and you have too, I think there is a legitimate skepticism or hesitation on the part of the public. When, you know, you may see ads for electric vehicles uh, on the Super Bowl, and, and you see the mainstreaming of electric vehicles, in in our consciousness, in in marketing, et cetera. But a casual Google will also tell you that the vehicles that that they're putting out are sort of ahead of the infrastructure, as you you noted. And nobody wants to be stuck with a car that (laughs) doesn't go, that you can't put gas into and, and get going. And some of the fears and trepidations are a little irrational. But some of them are absolutely rational. And you also mentioned the politics, which it's really something. And I pity the automakers. I pity the industry trying to make their bets on investments when, you you know, the the last year's legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, puts all of this funding and government support and, and investments, you know, out there. And then the other party, it got the House back in November, as we speak right now on this podcast, want to roll all of the climate change stuff back out of that legislation in exchange for holding the debt ceiling hostage. And so if you're Ford or General Motors or Stellantis trying to make smart, intelligent, well-timed investments, it's chaotic. You don't know where it's going
2: to go. It it is, David. But, you know, I I separate all the, you know, the explosive headlines and, you know, the vitriol that's going on in the media and, and try to, you know, disassemble that down to what's actually going to happen. So you're right. The Republicans want to walk that back but it has no chance of getting approved in the Senate and Biden would veto it anyway. So they're, they're getting their talking points out to their base right now. Moreover, the automakers will go absolutely ape if the Republicans claw back any of these incentives for EVs and so will dealers. And as you know, dealers vote heavily Republican. They're very conservative. They've made, some of them have dropped out. They've said, no, thank you. I don't want to be in the EV business, but the vast majority of them have stayed in. They're making the commitment and they can, they're not going to stand for uh, Congress, you know, pulling the rug out from under their feet after they've made these investments. So yeah, there's a lot of chatter about it. I don't see that happening whatsoever.
0: So John, I want to throw some numbers at you too, that I've assembled that speaks to how each company is kind of going their own way in terms of pace. Okay. Okay. So General Motors says that it'll be making 400,000 EVs in North America between 2022 and uh, sort of the middle of 24. And then it'll sort of keep that cadence uh, after 24. Stellantis says 50% of its sales EVs by 2030. And then just a couple of other things which I think are interesting for conversation Tesla had uh, about a four percent market share in in the first quarter of this year, and the Model Y was the best-selling passenger car in Q1. Yeah. So, so <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, it's messy. I guess is my yeah. my uh, my my conclusion from those numbers, and that each company, and particularly Toyota, stands out as wanting to walk this route instead of run it.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, well a couple of things here. The the Ford number number of 2 million EVs uh is a global number, not just a US number. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Ford's got a pretty significant presence in Europe, uh a smaller one in China, but probably half of that 2 million number is going to be Europe and uh and China. But going to Toyota, look, they dragged their heels, you know, Akio Toyota, the former CEO, said, uh, you know, look, we think hybrids and plug-in hybrids are the answer. There's no infrastructure issues. There's no range anxiety. We can reduce our carbon footprint. And uh, But then they started getting their their head kicked in in the Chinese market because it's gone crazy over EVs. And Europe's pretty strong in that regard, too. And in fact, I think it's very interesting to see how All of a sudden, without any warning whatsoever, Akio Toyota was kicked upstairs, as I say. He was promoted to chairman. And this new guy, uh, Sato, came in. I can't remember his first name off the top of my head right now. But anyway, and we've seen almost a 180 degree turn at Toyota in terms of it talking about EVs. They still say, oh, yeah, hybrids are important and PHEVs are important. But look at what they did. They they started this whole brand new separate business unit within Toyota to only work on EVs. And they're not going to use this ICE modified platform that they had been using called ETNGA, Toyota New Generation Architecture. You know, it's just pull out the ICE engine, stuff it full of batteries and call it a day. I'm being a little bit unfair there, but because actually the, the electrics they have are quite good cars but they're not purpose-built EVs. So their range isn't as good. Their charging time isn't as good as, as clean sheet designs. Well, now Toyota is going to do a clean sheet. In fact, the chatter out of Japan is they're scrapping the future products that they had on the ETNGA platform mm-hmm. and are going to go with this new one. So Toyota recognizes it's it's lost several years, uh, or let's put it this way, it has seeded the advantage to those OEMs who went clean sheet design with their EVs and especially the startups. So I, I think they had to uh, delicately move Akio Toyota out of the way to pull off this turnaround because it would have been very embarrassing for him to have to say all of a sudden, hey, uh, we got to get more serious about EVs.
0: Yeah. You know, on the topic of plugins, uh, you know, you and I both have seen that plugins did not catch up. But you know, no. they really didn't. And even the people who bought plugins, the research shows that they really didn't keep them charged very much either. So it was kind of like, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, we all have Microsoft office. we 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 use about four percent of what they can actually do. but on on paper, I agree with the Toyota position that, more hybrids, more plugins is it's a logical thing, and and particularly with hybrids. But something about the plugins, um, not that some of the offerings were all that attractive, you know, like the Ford C Max and you know those kind of uh, vehicles. But again, I guess wh- one of the things I wanted to discuss here is the messiness of this, and I was looking at a study, and. It kind of had a, a logical conclusion, which is that the biggest concern among automakers in making the transition is what would you think?
2: No profits. <laughs> I think that's Un- their biggest concern.
0: Well, uncertain demand. Yeah. Because, you know, California, as we know, they, you know, wield a lot of power in this. Uh, and and the automakers, because of the size of the economy and the size of the market, they they have to you know they have to do what carb uh, event you know ultimately is going to tell them to do. But there's a lot of you know some of these things are targets you know that the administration is 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 uh, putting out, and some and some things like in California and the EPA and the recent proposed rule by the EPA, those are ma- those would be mandates. So targets and mandates, you know, sort of in the same soup, and and the automakers have to make sense of it. Um, but I, um, I'm with you. The when you drive EVs, the driving experience belies what most of the naysayers say, because the driving experience is great. The hassle, and you and I, I'm sure, have both experiences the hassle is in charging. And you have to have a home charger. You have to be able to start out every day, you know, with two twenty, at least a 220 charger, you know, with 275, 300 miles. But if your journeys, as mine often do, are going to take you a bunch of miles before you can fully recharge, it's a little bit of an adventure still um, in finding and operating fast chargers.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, here's what I ask people when they say, you know, could I ever use an EV? And the questioning goes like this. Do you drive more than 200 miles a day? And the vast majority say, of course not. And I say, do you have 220 volt outlet in your garage? And most of them say, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, at my house, our washer, I I don't have an electric charger in my garage either. Got one at work, but not here. And so I say, well, look, my washer and dryer are right next to the garage. It'd be so easy to run 220 right into the garage for that. And so if you drive less than 200 miles a day, even in the dead of winter, Mm. and you can plug in at home at night, you're going to love an electric car. It's going to be brilliant. And that's going to actually satisfy the needs. I'll make up a number of 70% of car buyers. (laughs) Now, True. If you drive long distances all the time, if you have to uh, rely on public charging, if you do any amount of towing, no, I would say EVs are not for you yet. They'll get there, but they're not there right now. But if you drive less than 200 miles a day and you can put a 220-volt charger in your garage, you're going to want an EV over a nice vehicle every day of the week.
0: Yeah. And here's the other thing, which and we're not really there yet because of the cost of that. This is an SUV country, okay? So and I you and I both know a lot of people who, you know, will not only give up their their ice vehicle out of their cold dead hands, but SUVs, whether it's an explorer or a Tahoe or, or something like that. And the the electric versions of those vehicles are not really here in a large number, nor are they gonna be cheap. There's gonna be a premium to pay for those, to to get any kind of decent range. Um, the, the the other thing that's the big uh, concern among automakers too is battery production and availability.
2: There is an issue right now with, uh, it, will there be enough availability with cells? But the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, has kicked off, use your own term to describe it, I call it either the California gold rush or the Oklahoma land rush, there is so much investment pouring into the United States right now with anything electric, but especially in terms of refining the materials that go into the batteries, the mining of those materials and the the, the battery assembly itself. I mean, what the the experts tell me is that by 2026, 2027, 2028 for sure, the United States will be able to produce 80% of all the batteries that it needs without relying on China. And they're also predicting that in the early 2030s, there's going to be a global glut of batteries because of so much investment pouring in. So right now we're at the very beginning of this, this, this California gold rush, Oklahoma land rush. But in a few years time, it's going to become very obvious that we're gonna have more than enough batteries.
0: Yeah, it's it's a good business to be in if you're in if you're in those businesses right now, especially after the IRA. So I have a, a concluding question for you, John. Who among the legacy uh, manufacturers—so take the EV manufacturers out of it—who among the legacy manufacturers do you think is doing the best and smartest job of managing the transition?
2: Too early to say for sure, because we don't have the full results yet. But, you know, I'll go through several of them and and what I like and don't like. Uh, I love GM's approach. GM was the first legacy automaker to bite the bullet and say, we're not going to modify ICE platforms. We're going clean sheet. It's what they call their Ultium uh, program. And I love that. And and they've designed this so uh, the Ultium platform and the batteries that go in there can fit any GM vehicle. And right now the industry is in a race to scale because scale is what's going to give them profitability. And I love GM strategy because I think it's going to get it to scale faster than the others, but they got to execute. Right now they're having real problems building cars. Ford, I like their strategy. And what Farley said was, look, we cannot use our old legacy ways of doing things to come out with clean sheet EVs that are going to compete with Tesla you know, uh, software defined, digital twin developed, zone computing, or even centralized. Com- you know, we need a whole new way of doing it. So now, not only did he carve out a totally separate business group, it's staffed by people that are out of Silicon Valley. I think of the top seven or eight execs that are running that right now, only one is from Ford. The rest are from the outside, which I think is so smart. When I look at what some of the others have done, I think B- or, uh, Mercedes-Benz, Is doing a very good job. It's still a little bit behind the eight ball, but I think by 2025, 2026, it's going to have completely caught up. But its sales are doing quite well right now. BMW, not too bad either. Stellantis, they've been dragging their heels because, uh, like Toyota, Carlos Tavares, the CEO of Stellantis, had, I mean, he's he's talking down EV. He's saying all the right things. Yes, we're going to come out with them, but in his heart of hearts, it's clear he doesn't believe in them. Volkswagen, uh, they got a lot of resources, but their effort so far has kind of blown up in their face. the 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 software in their cars, uh, just not competitive. Very glitchy. The sales are okay, but when you look at China, which is Volkswagen's biggest market. Its ICE sales are falling faster than its EV sales are growing. I, the, their EVs just haven't caught on in China, which is the most hyper-competitive market uh, at all in the world right now. Um, we talked a little bit about Toyota. Honda, very interestingly, is gotten religion, too. It's decided it's not going to do an ICE-modified platform. It's going to go clean sheet. But it started a couple of years, I mean, it only started talking about doing that what i i think this year and uh, they they created an all-new software group last year so they're a little bit behind but they could still pull it off but i i think i hit all the top ones one more to the hyundai group so oh, hyundai, hyundai group is off to the races hyundai kia genesis they're doing terrific electric cars
0: well i'll tell you i i think the hyundai group is doing everything amazingly right now. I mean, they're I think every employee in that group must have the word overachieve, like <laughs> uh, tattooed on their, you know, somewhere on their, on their bodies, because they just keep overachieving everyone's expectations. John, thank you very much for your time and your stage observations, as always. And uh, John, tell our listeners, because we'll cross-promote Uh, when they can catch your podcasts.
2: Sure thing. Uh, You know, we go live every Thursday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern time, Eastern in the U.S. for those listening outside. And you can find that on our YouTube channel. Just look for AutoLine, the AutoLine Network, or you can check out our website at www.autoline.tv and everything's there.
0: Great. Thanks again, John, as always.
2: Thanks, David. Great talking with you.
0: Thank you, John. Always great stuff and great insights from you. And now when we come back from this commercial message, I'll be talking to Martin Fisher,
1: head of ZF North America. The Wards Auto Podcast is brought to you in part by Wards Events. Wards Auto is proud to bring you a series of auto tech events throughout the year and throughout the world. Autotech Detroit 2023 was held in Novi, Michigan this June, where more than 2,500 industry peers and innovators came together shared to share content and insights about electrification, connected car, autonomous driving, and more. And it's where Wards Auto and parent company Informa presented the 10 Best Interiors and UX Awards, as well as the Informa Tech Awards. Check out the agenda for Autotech Europe this November to be held in Germany and Autotech Electrification to be held in Michigan this October. At Wards, we're all about the future and guiding our readers and listeners to what's next. Go to wardsauto.informa.com.
0: Well, thank you for uh, joining us, Martin Fisher. You know, when I was coming up in the business, uh, Martin, I always uh, associated ZF with gearboxes because covering the the OEMs they wouldn't get too specific about what suppliers they brought to the table unless the part had some cachet or value as the brand that they wanted to highlight to us. And so, instead of gearboxes and steering systems, were always mentioned when I would get a you know a walk around preview or or a re- review of, of a new car. Brakes, you know what I mean? It's brakes. Uh, they they would that they were Brembo, you know, because there was. There was value in it. But point of fact, ZF has long been and continues to be an amazing company of innovation. And you are a sort a of leader in multiple industries in in the spaces that you operate, agriculture, marine mining, as well as passenger vehicles, trains, aviation. Just to give our audience a little bit of scale and you know introduction of how big ZF is. 165,000 worldwide employees, 168 production facilities in 32 countries, until I looked it up, I don't think I knew that ZF was was that big and broad worldwide in terms of the number of sites. About 44 billion in revenues and 562 million in operating income. And um, we've been talking to automakers Martin, the last several months, really, about this transition from ice engines to electrification that is impacting the OEMs, but it's greatly impacting suppliers like ZF because you are in both the ice area and you have systems and products and services connected to electrification to uh, autonomous uh, technology, hydrogen too, I think. So can you talk to us a little bit about, first of all, just to get us started, how long has ZF been supplying
3: parts or systems for electric vehicles? This is indeed a big transformation that you are describing. And uh, on the ZF side, yeah, there's more than 100 years of history and legacy, and it all started from the gearboxes and the transmissions for automotive. Um, When it comes to the transition now into the electric age, um, we have indeed been active for the last 15 years in that. So for us, it started on the hybrid side. So 15 years ago, we launched our first edition of converting a pure mechanical transmission into a hybrid transmission, adding electric motor already at the time. And um, that was a very important starting point for us, because um, we could explore, we could invent basically the electrification and could go from the hybrid side, beginning mild hybrids, then into strong uh, plug-in hybrids, and now into full electric vehicle solutions. Part of that learning, we developed the competencies, the products, but also a bit the scale for it. So as we speak, we have already delivered 2 million electric motors into the market at a time that um, the market is just starting to take off for full baths now.
0: Aware that uh, supplier companies to OEMs and and other companies sometimes can't always talk about who their customers are, but is it possible? So 15 years ago is when you kind of got into the electric space. Can you talk about which oems you have supplied motors to
3: yeah no it's definitely a global setup that we are when you follow our eight-speed transmissions that i still believe are the best in the world that uh, one can get um you know quite a few premium makers and brands use those so it's um the German brands, you know, we are in BMW, that's pretty obvious. Um, the Volkswagen group is using them on their higher end vehicles. We are in the Land Rovers and the Jaguars. We um, have a strong work going on with Stellantis, with Chrysler side, the Dodge side of it. So those are all the customers that go the transition from purely mechanical into hybrids and on. So that's where you will find our solutions.
0: So. Your company has been very innovative, you know, over the decades, it's over 100 years old. I often quote Jim Farley from Ford on this point and on this topic, and he says that more innovation will be brought to the automobile and the consumer in the next 15 years than in the last 60 or 70 years. Do you agree with that?
3: I definitely agree with it. And that's true for the whole... Car, the whole system, the ecosystem around. And it. it is also true for the electric drivetrains, linking it back to our topic here. When you see the progress that we still make around electric motors these days, they have been around for 100 plus years. Um, it's amazing with um, the amount of resource that goes in, how much more performant they still become, what level of efficiency we get out. And I mean, also how much more sustainable, for instance, an electric motor becomes. So, you know, we heavily rely on magnets and uh, rare earth and those uh, magnets. And um, that is not very sustainable. So when our engineers challenge themselves today, they bring electric motors to the next level. The sense of new construction, new mechanical construction, better cooling concepts, and that way it can drive down the magnet and rare earth content to levels that are, again, more sustainable. So
0: tell us, what is the most important technology or systems or where, where is your specific innovation in the electric drive systems?
3: Yeah, we look at the drive systems as a whole. So there's three key ingredients. Um, there's certainly the electric motor. And then we have the power electronics, the inverter controlling the energy flow between battery and the electric motor. And then there is still the good old gearing. So we still need a reduction gear to translate the high refs of an e-motor down to the wheels. So those are the three key ingredients. And um, we play all three components, but then also we can offer them in complete um, e-axles or drivetrain solutions. So, when you look here into the market in North America, um, we still have our trucks and we are electrifying the trucks um, with their beam axles. So, ZF is in a position, for instance, to develop, to engineer, to produce an entire E beam, electric beam axle that um, has also those three elements the motors, the inverters, and the gearing attached to the axle.
0: You know, one of the things that we're seeing, and it varies by company. Uh, companies, as they get further into the electrification era, wanting to develop and own some of the key systems themselves, uh, so they're not overly dependent on companies like yourself, and also because they want that revenue. How do you see the trend with the companies that that you talk to and and with your customers? That question of whether to develop something you know, a key system in-house or go to ZF uh, as a supplier partner?
3: It's all leveling out around the question of make or buy in the eyes of the OEMs. So when the electric wave was starting to develop, I mean, we were all a bit scared, right? Almost on the supply side saying, well, looking at the OEMs and knowing their value yet, uh, around the combustion engine, would they not naturally insource everything? And where does that leave us as a tier one supplier? In the meanwhile, we know, again, it's not as radical of an approach. And we find our good inroads through excellent technology, as usual, a good solution convinces. And um, then also through the economies of scale that we still have to our advantage being a tier one, serving customers around the world um, with good platform solutions that allow us to scale adequately. So in the end, it's again about competitiveness as being the decisive factor. And um, we harvest that through, again, good technology. On our end, through good vertical integration, and then the economies of scale. And when you think about an e-B axle um, as an example, I mean, we internalize quite a bit when we do that at ZF. So it goes through the electronics. Um, we are an electronics player, as you know. Um, so, the inverters, we will fully assemble in-house. Um, we have the gearing and the mechanical competencies, also electric motors are really built ground up inside. So, there's not many parties involved earning money if we build an e-beam axle inside of ZF. And um, that vertical integration, I think, adds to the financial or to the commercial strength that we bring to the party. And that enters the equation, man. And OEM says, hey, what do I do internally? What do I do externally? Um, that moves the needle sometimes and in a good way towards the tier one suppliers, like I said.
0: You know, you talked about, you know, a certain amount of fear as all of this technology and and capital investment was required. And so uh, one of the things that I find so impressive right now, uh, and I sort of look at at different companies for how they're managing this, but, you know, for auto companies and suppliers, is the ability... Uh, to make the necessary investments in the future in this massive shift, while protecting revenue and profits now uh, with ice technology, which is you know let's say basically is, is funding a lot of this this capex. How is ZF going about this in terms of balancing how much capital investment, R and D investment, and and this kind of thing? in electrification, in hydrogen, before they really take off in, in terms of high high volume scale and the responsibility you have to the company and shareholders now to keep revenue and profits uh, uh, healthy.
3: This is a highly strategic question, obviously, David, that um, a company like ZF has to go through. and. For us, it happened actually a couple of years ago already that we said when we portray the future, when we choose the most likely scenario, we do believe in that electrification trend. And once we had that clear from the top of the house, um, we could make good decisions. And one of the decisions early on was then let's invest our engineering resources and then also CapEx, predominantly into that new field of electrification. We made conscious decisions to say, we are not going to develop a new generation of our 8-speed transmission. We now consciously do the last one, and everything else is going to move forward into the electrification space. So that was key. And of course, now we are at a point that our engineers are focusing on these new products. and. Um, there is no second thought to it. So the, the train is moving, we are moving. Nevertheless, at which speed? That is not so clear to the markets, right? We are discussing numbers of 50% electric vehicles in the market here in North America in 2030. Are the consumers going to go along? Who knows, right? We, we will see that. So here comes now another good strategic decision. How do we invest our capex? And that was the core of your question, too. And um, for us, we have to be um, cautious on both ends. We cannot invest too much into the old technology. Let's say the transition to E goes faster than anticipated. Don't want to sit on idle capacity too much. And on the other hand, we want to invest in the right speed also into the electric products. So for us, that means really in the plants, we have come to highly modular approaches with our manufacturing lines where we can add modules over time to carefully ramp up, for instance, on the e side. So every wave of investment really needs good consideration, mirroring the market demands, mirroring what we hear from the consumer side and the OVM side to then very consciously go a next capacity step. That's an interesting one indeed.
0: It's almost as if you're reading off my notes page because... uh... Uh, my next question was going to be exactly that about, about what you thought of the 50% of new sales in the US by 2030, as far as the pace goes, because I've seen survey uh, I saw a survey recently that said among auto companies that the number one concern that they have uh, about moving into the era of electrification is consumer acceptance and adoption. That's their number one concern because that affects the pace of sales volume uh, over the next decade. And if you're a forward planner, like most good companies are, you, you have to sort of have a good idea of how much demand there's going to be. So at the beginning of our discussion, I gave the audience a little snapshot of uh, ZF worldwide. So you've got you know a lot of production centers around the world and a lot of those presumably are dedicated to uh, the ICE business. Are you converting some of those plants to the more electrification-centric production of parts and systems? Or are you building new plants uh, because the old ones are not so easily converted? How is that
3: working? Yeah, big picture, we keep it under the same roof. So we made a decision in ZF that we even merged units. So when electrification started for us, it was an own business division, and we had the traditional powertrain transmission division at the side of it. And uh, now about two years ago, we decided to merge both to keep it under one roof. The key driver for that decision was to say, we got to master that uncertainty and speed of transformation. And we will have to move facilities and, more importantly, employees from the right side to the left side and uh, make sure we, we find sufficient employment and uh, sufficient ways of retraining, of reskilling these people. Because it's a rather big endeavor to say we have 10,000 of people today on the ice side. We obsolete all them and then we say we build new Greenfield, both facility wise and employee wise. So, we think it's very responsible and in the end also very efficient and effective to transfer our employees from the ice age into the EVH. So, that's why you will find facilities that convert where we run the good classical transmission lines and bring up electric products. Now. We even go a step further because. Um, we need to make sure we also do justice to our employees. Um, in GeoPic transmission factory in a city called Sabrücken. and um, that's employing about 9,000 people. And as part of the conversion, and where we say, where's the future? We even found a more courageous step to say, what are the employees going to do in the future? So you might have read that we teamed up with Wolfspeed. And Wolfspeed is now going to build a new semiconductor fab for silicon carbide chips in Saarbrücken. So not only is ZF co-investing into that semiconductor factory now, but we are also going to transfer transmission employees into a semiconductor fab. So that gives Wolfspeed operating the factory a head start in terms of employment. Um, It's very skilled labor that we have. Of course, they got to learn semiconductor right, versus transmission factory. Um, but we are committed to go that. And so to see how we transition really from the past into the future, considering both technology, but also the employment. List.
0: Well, you know, it's very, again, it's like you're reading my page, but I know you're not because I didn't send this page to you. My, uh, and I, again, I often quote Jim Farley because I uh, pay attention to uh, you know what he's what he's saying, and also before I took this job, I actually worked in the Ford ecosystem, and so and anyhow, he was in a capital markets presentation recently, and he put a big emphasis in terms of what he's concerned about with Ford. He referred to it as the global talent war for real high-skilled and, and talented people in the software space. And so you know how important software is to the future of, uh, of vehicles the, the, uh, with, with electrification, et cetera. And one of the things with OEMs is that they've historically had a difficult time attracting really strong talent in this space because uh, quite naturally, people coming at us, the best schools in this area had Silicon Valley to kind of go to and aspire to. And I, I looked at a recent list of top 20 companies among software engineers about, you know, where they wanted to go, the companies they admire, et cetera. And there was no mobility companies, not even Tesla on the top 20. So how is ZF, you know, tier one supplier to the transportation and mobility industries how are you competing uh, to get the talent that you
3: need in this, in this area? You start from a good base, and that is encouraging. So when you look at the ZF way, the story over the last, let's say, 10 years, strengthening the product portfolio and the competencies and the engineers in electronics and software was a key strategic rationale. So the two big acquisitions that we had with TRW first and then WAPCO three years ago, that brought really significant competencies into the group. So great, great starting point, go through M&A, so there is a good good substance. And um, from here, it has a lot to do with internal development of resources and keeping them attracted and uh, keep them moving into the newest products. Um, that can be exciting when we play in the electrification field, but we have also the other areas of uh, ADAS and autonomous driving, of vehicle motion control that offer really exciting activities for the engineers. And yet, that is not good enough. So we are also going out into the market to recruit, and that indeed is fierce competition between the tech companies, and we consider ourselves as a tech company as well, and the OEMs, the, the tier one supply base, broader. So we are in a good global setup. So the employment market for us is the global market. Yes, we are here in metro Detroit. We are in Germany, but we are equally strong in China and India. So see where we can get the best talent. And um, in our recruiting efforts, David, we start very early. So we try to establish the brand better and better as an attractive employer also for the top tech talent. So we start working really with high schools. We start working into the communities to get the ZF brand across as one um, that has a lot to offer into the mobility space and therefore for good, good engineers. It, it is a tough market, though, so no doubt. Thank you so much, Martin, for your great
0: insights and for sharing your time. That's a wrap on Episode 3 of the Wards Auto Podcast. Remember, you can access Wards Auto Podcast from any major podcast platform. Thank you to John McElroy and Martin Fisher for their time, their insights, and their information. Till next time, I'm David Kiley, Senior Editor at Wards Auto.